This is God's word given to us in Luke 10, 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he said, that is, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to, to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by, your, to me by, by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thanks, Rick. Great job reading. That was really well done. Man, how are you guys doing? It is good uh, to be with you this afternoon, right, or evening good to be together. Um, I was reminded this week of a uh, 
a quote famously said by Brother Andrew. If you don't know who Brother Andrew is, he uh, was a missionary who smuggled Bibles. He wrote a book called um, God Smuggler. He smuggled Bibles into China. He smuggled Bibles past the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union. And he said this. He said, the work of the church is not survival. She, referring to the church, exists to fulfill the Great Commission. The work of the church is not survival. She exists to fulfill the Great Commission. Very great quote. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days, weeks, months, even years where um, it kind of feels like you're just trying to survive, right? Doesn't it feel that way at times? I, I know I can often live there. And I think it's safe to say that if we just broaden our scope a little bit, uh, we can often think of the church and what we're trying to do here in this world as simply trying to survive. Doesn't it often feel that way? Right? We imagine we're trying to preserve the church or protect the church. In other words, like we can function in such a way where we're only playing defense and rarely ever do we feel like we're playing offense when it comes to our faith lived out amongst one another in this world. And I think uh, more than ever, one of the clearest ways to spot this when we have really flipped the switch and we're living in such a way where we're in survival mode as a church is when we find ourselves focusing all of our time, effort, and energy on giving ourselves to things that we are against versus the things that we are actually for. I mean, we live in a day and age where everyone, it's, it's pretty easy to spot and talk about the things that we are against. Everyone's against something, and you can quickly find out what people are against in any conversation that you're a part of. But rarely often are we giving our energies towards the things that we are for. In Luke 10, what Rick just read for us is really all about what we are to be for what we are to be for, what we are called to give our energy to. Right? Luke 10 is all about us, if you're a Christian, living on mission with Jesus. And this passage is showing us that Jesus, you guys, he is the king who saves. And as the king who saves, he's also the king that sends those who are saved. Right? So if you've been saved, right? our passage would say this way, if you've experienced the forgiveness and peace of Jesus in your life, you've been saved, you are sent. We worship a king who saves and sends. This is the thing. And so there's a lot going on in our passage, so much in fact. It's been really fun and challenging to try to, to get down to the, the, the nitty-gritty of what we really need to discuss today. I mean, there's a lot said here. We have dust on our feet. We have demons and Satan and hell and uh, you know, we have, we have a lot of random things, not random things, but we also have joy. We have salvation. There's a lot here to cover, but it's so important for our lives. And so what I want us to see is this. Uh, the first thing that I want us to see is in verses 1 through 12, Jesus is really preparing his people to go out on mission with him. And so we see a lot here what the nature of this mission is, and it's, it's very much so like the one that we even have from Jesus today. But then 13 and 16, the, the place that we often skip, for being honest, when we read this passage, and it's a really important section because it's showing us the seriousness of this mission. And then the last thing that we see in these last two chunks, 17 through 24, we see the joy that is to be experienced in this mission. So the nature, the seriousness, and the joy of the mission. So let's look at the nature of the mission. And let's just look in verse 1. We already see a few things that kind of get spelled out for us. And it says, After this, the Lord Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself 
was about to go. And so right here in this opening verse, we see that the nature of our mission, if you're on mission with Jesus, is that it's meant to be global in its scope and it's meant to be done together. It's global and it's meant to be done together. Notice how Jesus appoints them. That's a really important thing because this is showing you that what Jesus is sending out to do is actually authorized and it's initiated by God. But we also see that he sends out 72. Why 72? Was that just all he had? Well, no, this is a really important number because it represents the 72 nations that were part of the Jewish tradition. It's an echo of Genesis chapter 10. So essentially, it was thought in the Jewish tradition that 72 nations made up the world. So essentially then, it's speaking of the future global reach of Jesus' mission. In other words, you guys, there is nobody who is breathing air today that this message and this mission is not relevant for. It's global. And so verse 1 is showing us this. It's divine and it's global in scope, but verse 1 continues and it tells us another thing, right? That we're never meant to do it alone. We're not meant to do this alone. And we can't miss this. You can't miss this. They weren't sent out alone, but in pairs. I mean, I would almost be tempted to think that sending them out individually would accomplish, you could get a lot more traction, right? You could, you could spread out a little bit more. You could maybe hit up more places, but no, he sends them out in pairs. They were meant to have another believer with them as they went on mission with Jesus. Guys, I mean, that shows us, especially as it shows these 72, that we need each other as we follow Christ in this world. We need each other, don't we? We really do. When one of us is discouraged in our following of Jesus, we need someone there to pick us up. As I'm having a low moment, I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to to pick me up. And God uses me in the same way to encourage and inspire another believer when they're at their lowest point. We, we, We do this together, right? But verse 2 continues, and it's a really important verse that you can honestly teach and preach an entire sermon on. And this verse here, I think, is showing us how God is wanting us to get our heart into the mission. Look at what it says. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right? He's saying, look up, guys. I want to imagine Jesus by a field almost, right? Look up, consider this field, consider the harvest, right, that could be had in this world. And what does he want them to consider? He wants them to consider the world, the vastness of it, the potential of harvest here, but he wants them to see the lack of laborers, the lack of laborers. Uh, I can vividly remember being in Istanbul, Turkey for five weeks at one point and Uh, Being in that city, at many points, being in a high place where I could look out over this vast city, it was very overwhelming. Uh, There are 15.42, sorry, 15.46 million people that live in the city of Istanbul, Turkey. If you knew that, it's a very, very large city. And only 0.003 claim to know Christ. That's a very small number. That means that there are 15.42 million people in that city that don't know Jesus. I can remember traveling with a missionary in the Himalayas, wanting to spread the gospel amongst Tibetan Buddhists. And we would drive from village to village, and we would pass two or three 
with no comments. And then we'd finally pass one and he would say to me, like, we know of one believer that's here. We'd travel these places and I can't speak the language, but he would speak the language. He would share the gospel with them. And he would often say to me in response, when I'd ask him what was exchanged, what was talked about. And almost every single time he would tell me that one of the believers or the people who don't know Christ would say to him, wow, that is amazing. I've never heard that before. When he would share with them the gospel. He would talk to them about Jesus and they would literally say things to him like, who is that? Does he live in the next village? Is that the name of a town somewhere? They have no comprehension of who Jesus is, right? The harvest is plentiful. Gresham itself, guys, is considered a harvest field in the eyes of Jesus. We have 110,500 people that live in this city alone. And I calculated just from my rough math that 16.5% of people here loosely call themselves Christians in some evangelical sort of sense. These are people just checking a box, right, on a census sort of card. That means that about 6,700 people here in our city alone claim Christ, and we see the total number of people. Guys, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Considering this vision that Jesus is giving them is, is critical, and Jesus knows this. Guys, before he tells his followers to go, he tells them to pray. Right, to get their heart into the mission. I believe this will be on the screen for you, but Hudson Taylor, who was a British missionary in the 1800s to um, China, uh, he said this. He says, do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument afterwards. You don't have to play an instrument to know it's a bad idea, right, if you do it that way. He says, begin the day with the word of God in prayer and get first of all into harmony with him. Right? Get in alignment with God. Get your heart into the mission. Prayer lifts our eyes off of ourselves often, and it's meant to focus our gaze on the world. It's meant to align our hearts with God's heart. And as we pray, we remember that our eyes are lifted, you guys, to a harvest. They're not lifted to a desert. There's a massive potential here. We'll touch on this later, but we are meant to notice this, that we are looking at a harvest, not a desert. And it's his harvest, right? You see that? He is described as what? The Lord of this harvest. And so we pray, and we pray for what? We pray for more to be sent out and labor in that field called the world. In my neighborhood, on the street, in my workplace. Because as I lift my eyes and I see this massive potential of what could be reaped from this world, I realize that as I'm praying for more laborers, I'm realizing that I am a laborer myself, right? That, that Jesus is telling me to pray to get my heart into the mission, but that I am the one that's actually being sent here. That's who he's talking to. He's telling the sent ones who are about to go to be praying for more to go with them. Right? Verses 3 through 4 show us more about this nature of the mission. Right? It talks about how we need to get going in the mission. Look, it says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. This verse is preparing us to understand, guys, that our mission is not going to be very popular at times. You don't have to know much about animals to know that lambs in the midst of wolves is not like a positive idea. They're not like buddy-buddy sort of animals with each other, right? that this Jesus is preparing them, hey, this is not going to be very popular. Right? There are going to be people you meet that are not going to like this idea. 
Once again, I was reading a a recent Barna Group study, and it talked about how 47% of millennial Christians, so people born between 1981 and 1996, I would be in that group, right? So 47% of millennial Christians responded that witnessing to non-believers is wrong. Half of millennials would say, no, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Why do you think that is? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I would think at least one of them would be that it's unpopular, right? Because we've been told our whole lives if something's not popular, don't do it, right? Don't do it. So we're often surprised when we find that being on mission with Jesus is unpopular in this world, but we are told that that should not be surprising. Jesus even said in his, uh, the account of John's gospel that if the world hates me, they will hate you. It's unpopular, but we're also told in verse 4 that it's urgent, That's why he says, don't take anything with you. Let nothing stand in the way of your going, of your mission. It's so urgent that nothing should stand in their way. They're told to greet nobody on the road, right? That's meant to indicate the urgency of the mission because this would have been extremely offensive to withhold a greeting. And if you were a pious, like religious, good person in this day and age, you would try to be the first person to greet somebody in passing on the road. So this would be a very shocking statement. And I don't think you're meant to take from this that, that you shouldn't be nice and greet people. Please, go ahead, do that. Be the first, right? That's a really good thing to do in this world. But we must realize that if God is calling us to this, the idea here is that there will be many things that get in the way of it. There'll be good things that'll get in the way of this even. And we must not let good things become an enemy of the best things. And the last thing, the last chunk here, verses 5 through 12 is telling us to get our, our message right. This, this mission carries a message with it. Look in verse 5. Whatever house you enter first, say what? Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, I tell you. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. As Christian history shows us that Uh, The first generation that receives the gospel believes it and proclaims it. And sadly, the second generation begins just to assume the gospel. Yeah, we understand that. We know it. And Christian history shows us that the third generation denies it. So we must be clear on this message of the good news of what this gospel is, right? What does Jesus tell them to say? Verse 5, what does he say? He says, peace be to this house. This is shorthand. This is shorthand in Luke's terms for having a restored relationship to God that's made possible through the forgiveness of sins, right? It would be beneficial right here just to flip in your Bibles to the left a little bit to Luke chapter 1. If you go to the left in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 76, you'll notice Zechariah's prophecy, his poem, when he finds out that John the Baptist is going to come into this world, right? The forerunner to the Messiah, We went over this at Christmas, two Christmases ago. But this is what it says in verse 76. You, child, referring to John, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Luke tells you right out of the gate what it means to say, peace be to this house. He's talking about experiencing the forgiveness of sins, being reconciled in relationship to your God. Right? We have sin. We need to be forgiven. And that is only possible through the laying down and sacrifice of Jesus' own life. Through his blood, we are offered the forgiveness of sins. That's why it ends by saying, guiding your feet in that process, in the way of peace. The same thing comes up in Luke chapter 7, when we saw uh, last year this, this famous story of this woman who is probably an, uh, a prostitute who comes into this house while Jesus is dining with all these religious people. And she's weeping and she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears and washing them. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious people go, who is this guy? Right? They get all upset at him. Right? Who has the authority to forgive sins? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Guys, you need forgiveness. This world needs forgiveness. And the offering of that forgiveness in Jesus is an offer of peace. It's an offer of peace. That's what we need. It's a message of peace. What about those who say, I don't need this peace? Verses 10 through 12 tell you to dust off your feet, right? We have a lot of more concrete in, in our city than they did, so this might feel kind of ridiculous to us. Um, but they would shake off the dust of their feet basically as a sign of judgment against these people, right? But this was not meant to show them this sort of uh, sign of, hey, forget you, like we don't care about you anymore, you know, that kind of idea. That's not what this, this meant. It was to show them the horror of the missed opportunity, that was just presented to them. That this act of, of dust, shake the dust off your feet, it was meant to be a sign of judgment in hopes that they would see that sign and go, maybe I need to reconsider this. Right? I, that I would turn and they would change their heart and mind about this message. That they would think, maybe I do need to be forgiven. Maybe that forgiveness is through this, this message of this kingdom of God that has come in Jesus Christ. Right? They would want them to know because if they never turn, what does it say? They will be worse off than Sodom. That was a universally well-known city that was judged. Right? People were like, oh yeah, Sodom. I mean, we don't, we don't have the same understanding in the same way, but we at least know you don't name roads after Sodom or after Gomorrah. Like, you don't, if you live on Sodom, you should probably move, right? I mean, no one's going to do that. But I think maybe in a modern way, I, I tried to think through something. Maybe this would be like Jesus saying, to be worse off for you than Hitler and his Nazis. Right? Let me ask you, do people around you, who you love, even know that they are rejecting Jesus? You guys. This is our message. And it's a message of peace. A message of forgiveness. There is a harvest in Gresham. Do you see it? Let's lift up our eyes. There is a harvest in Portland. Do you believe it? There's a harvest in Istanbul. There's a harvest in Somalia. There's a harvest in Iran. There's a harvest in North Korea. 
Do you see it? This is a serious mission. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. These are the places the disciples were sent, you guys. They've rejected the offer of peace. That's what this sackcloth and ashes statement from Jesus is expressing because that would have been an expression of repentance. Oh, they would have done that. But can you hear Jesus' heart lamenting words? Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. This is a matter of life and death, right? Heaven and hell. I know hell has fallen on hard times. It's not popular to talk about, but it is real, isn't it? I mean, if it's not, then why in the world would Jesus come and die on a cross in such a suffering, brutal sort of way? Why would the Son of God himself take on flesh, incarnate himself, and come and live a perfect life and die a brutal death? Why would God do that if this were not? serious if this were not a matter of life and death right as he knows what issues here are at stake and so for the non-christian who's rejecting jesus if you're here today i'm really glad you're here but in verse 15 this is often the the message of our day capernaum is saying i'll i can get to heaven on my own that's what jesus is referring to here and he's saying what will you be exalted to heaven how not without me right how will you get there? This is for the person who goes, yeah, I'm fine. I'll be lifted up to heaven on my own. Jesus says, how? He says, woe to you. Woe to you. You're rejecting the only thing that you need. And as Christians, do our lives and our actions say to people that Jesus is just one way to God? Do our actions say that? I know mine often do. Do our lives say, oh, sin isn't that serious? You know, if my family and friends and colleagues do things in their rejection of Jesus, we just go, oh, it's all kind of negotiable, right? God is merciful. Yes, he is so merciful, guys, so merciful that he sent his son to die and offer peace. Guys, if we, if we don't see the seriousness of it, then our sharing and our going will be a matter of indifference. They must hear And in hearing your words, do you see it in verse 16? They're hearing Jesus. And in rejecting your words, they're rejecting Jesus. They're not rejecting you. We could take it so personal, but Jesus says, no, they're rejecting me. And if you reject Jesus, you guys, you reject God. See that in verse 16? Nature is is serious. Again, I was reminded of Hudson Taylor who explained the gospel message to a young Chinese man. And that man received Christ's peace. And I was really humbled because he asked Hudson Taylor innocently, how long have you known this truth in your country? And Hudson Taylor said, several hundred years. And the young man was shocked. And he said, hundreds? 
My father searched all of his life. And he died last year never finding him. Why didn't you come sooner? Those words are hard to hear. They're sobering, but man, we need to hear them. I know I did. It's serious. If I can choke back my tears, there is the joy of the mission, though. Verse 17. We see the disciples' joy. The 72 returned with joy, right? Saying what, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I kind of imagine, uh, as I often see in my own home, my kids running through the door like they've just seen something amazing. And there's nothing uh, more palpable than the energy from a group of kids who just thought they saw something really cool, right? They just, they're all talking at once with just electricity basically running through their voices, right? Nothing beats that. And I imagine the disciples' joy seems to be very much the same way. And what is it rooted in? Well, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We did all these amazing things, right? They're elated about this accomplished mission. They were sent by Jesus and they saw Jesus' power, right? They've seen the results. They rejoice in their accomplishments. And that's a good thing to rejoice in. I don't think Jesus is shaming them here for for their joy in this because I can't imagine Jesus would want them to come back sort of hanging their heads or just trying to keep it cool or something like, you know, NBD, no big deal, you know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's just some demons listen to our voices, you know, happens every day. That's, that's not at all. I don't think the posture that Jesus wants them to have, but he does want to caution us here as his followers in our day and age. And it's a warning about becoming prideful because look at what verse 18 says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, right? Lightning moves fast, doesn't it? Right? We all agree lightning moves very fast. That's the idea. Pride will trip us up and make us fall fast. Jesus doesn't want this for us. He doesn't want us to, to give these things this place in our life where that's where I get my joy. Right? And it can be really sophisticated sort of pride, but that's what he's talking about here. I see um, pride in my life, and I see pride in my kids' lives and everybody's life. And um, my, my four-year-old daughter right now um, does this really funny thing. I think it's pretty cute, but my wife was wheeling her around a grocery store the other day, and this random stranger said something to someone in passing, like, oh, I really like your coat. And my four-year-old daughter said to my wife, do you think they like my coat? You know? Uh, the other day, even I was telling my almost 10-year-old daughter, you look so pretty today. My four-year-old said, do you think I look pretty? You know? And she's serious. I'm like, oh, of course, you're beautiful, no matter what you're wearing, right? That kind of idea. And it's cute, right? But we know this idea does not age well, does it? Right? Like if you were saying to, to Mike, like, I like your shirt, and I was like, well, what about mine? Right? You'd be like, who's this guy? Right? Okay? It just becomes more subtle and more sophisticated as we get older, right? Often we think, look what I did. Look what I did. Right? And so we read this, and we're like, why is Jesus being so hard on them? Because it's pride. It's more sophisticated, right? So what does he do? He turns their gaze, behold, Behold, look at this, guys. I've given you authority, verse 19, over the enemy, over snakes and scorpions. So if you needed yet another reason why you should not like snakes and scorpions, 
here is yet another reason, right? This is evidence. Okay? They're not only disgusting, they seem to be buddies with the enemy, okay? So um, here we go, right? They shall not be harmed by them. That's what there's to behold here, in part. Right? This means they won't suffer an eternal sort of way. They are secure. It doesn't mean that the Christian in following Jesus in their mission will not suffer. No, we are promised that. This kind of harm is an eternal sort of harm. No one can do that to you. Because the one that has authority over them, King Jesus, right? He has secured their salvation. Because look what he says. Where should they find their joy? What's the cure for their pride? Verse 20, don't rejoice in what you do. Rejoice in who you are. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, what you've done, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice, find your joy in the fact that your names are written in heaven. You are mine. You have a home, and it's promised. Guys, there's a big difference between rejoicing in the power that we have over something or someone and rejoicing in the powerful grace of Jesus over our lives. One is very fleeting. One will always remain. And this is our problem, even when it comes to doing ministry, isn't it? That we seek our joy in the results, right? In what we do, in the outcomes that we see. And that produces really high highs and really low lows, doesn't it? Right? We aren't secure in those things. We forget this. We don't rejoice in Jesus knowing our name and writing our name in heaven. We rejoice in making a name for ourselves. We rejoice in justifying ourselves, even doing so in the name of Jesus. And this is exactly the fall of Satan and why he appears here in the teaching of Jesus. He wants them to be reminded of their name and where it's located because knowing your name and whose you are and where it's found, it really matters. I remember uh, when my son Gus was about three years old he was at like a Kohl's or something with Elizabeth. Um, you would think that my wife is always at stores with kids, apparently, according to today's message. But um, he ran off and got lost. And he's definitely our kid who always does this, right? And an employee found him, okay, and, and asked him what his name was so they could broadcast it over the PA system so Elizabeth could know where he is. And his actual name is August. But we call him Gus, and often we call him Gussie. And so when, we asked, when they asked him what his name was, he said, Gussie. He said, Gussie's three, okay? He has no front teeth. He's terrified. And he says, Gussie, okay? And when he said Gussie, it sounded like Jesse, right? So they're like, Jesse, you know, paging whoever, Jesse's here in the front, you know, that kind of thing. And my, luckily, my wife went to the front, hoping that not multiple kids are lost, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, when he was reunited with her, man, I wasn't in his body, but man, that kid felt joy, didn't he? He felt relief. He was home. And afterwards, she was telling him that when he's lost, when he's lost, because he's Gus, right? When he's lost, right? To tell them your mommy's name. Tell them your mommy's name. And she goes, what's my name, Gus? And he said, mommy. She goes, that's great, right? But what's my other name, right? And he goes, babe, right? Right? He's three. He only knew her by what he's heard her called, right? That's how we know people, by what they're called. All of his siblings call her mom. 
His dad calls her babe, apparently. Guys, the world has called you names from your birth. From your birth. And those names are always based upon what you've done. And you have moments where you feel like you live into that name and you have moments where you're way behind. Names that we try and achieve and live into that are very, not very secure, right? So maybe your whole life you've been told you are intelligent. So you're like, well, I gotta keep being intelligent. You're pretty. You're athletic. You're resourceful. You're creative. You're responsible. You're funny. Right? You're a visionary. You're very friendly. Guys, this is the world that we live in. And we locate our identities, our names in these places, hoping that they'll last. But Christianity, guys, is simply that we find our name in the name of Jesus. That that's what he's done. That what he's done is who we are. That's why we sing that that great um, song before the throne. We sing, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can say to you, hey, you don't belong here. Oh, no, no. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You want to have fuel for your mission on a daily basis. Rejoice in that. This is the joy of our mission, and it's Jesus' joy as well. Look at verse 21. Not only do the disciples have joy, but Jesus has it too. And you read verse 21, it says, In the same hour Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Did you know that this is the only place in the Gospels that we are told Jesus rejoices? We're told he weeps three times. This is the only place you're ever told that Jesus rejoices. It's here. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Guys, what does Jesus find joy in? Verse 21 tells you very clearly, he finds joy in saving people. He finds joy in the conversion of souls. I mean, Jesus, no doubt, like us, saw so much in this world that could make us grieve, right? But when he saw some poor men, few women, receiving the good news of his peace, his heart was refreshed. He saw it, and he was glad. Right, verse 22 continues, and what does it show you? All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Again, that's his authority. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Once again, we have this great truth. This is showing us that it is his joy so much that God, that Jesus himself, is sovereign in salvation. Right? The meaning here is clear. There are some from whom salvation is hidden. These are those who are like, I can make it to heaven on my own. Right? But then there are some from whom salvation is revealed. And this truth is deep. This truth is mysterious. But we must understand here that God is so merciful, guys, that he chooses to save us. That he is so merciful and he finds his joy in that. In doing a work in your life that you weren't even asking for. I was reminded this week of Don Ritchie, who died in 2012. 
Uh, he, he lived across the street from the most famous suicide spot in Australia. It was a cliff known as the Gap. Most people who lived there would move on frequently. It would be a hard place to live. But Don Ritchie, who ended up being named the Angel of the Gap, stayed for almost 50 years. I think his picture could be on the screen. It's probably pixelated, but... He died in 2012, and he saved an estimated 160 people from suicide. No one asked him to do that. No one's going to the gap and calling Don on the way, hey, I'm headed there. Don just did it. It was his gracious will, right, to save all that he could. And guys, it's a similar picture, except our God is, is way more effective. He is perfectly effective in saving all of those that he finds joy in doing so. And so the goal is not to know and argue about who that is and why that is, but to know that if you believe, if you've experienced and received the peace of Christ, you are to rejoice in that and you are to go. You are to rejoice in that and you are to go. This does not cheapen our mission. It does not alleviate our responsibility. It fuels it because my heart is engaged when Jesus says, look up at the fields of Gresham. Look at the, the people of Iran. Pray, knowing that I'm going to bring people out of that, that place. That as I go, I'm promised that he will save. And then we get our greatest joy in life here in the end. Because Jesus turns from his public rejoicing and praying to privately say to his disciples, what? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And you're probably so happy, right? Why should they be happy to see what they've seen? Is it because of the miracles? No. Verse 24, I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. They didn't see it. They wanted to hear what you hear. They didn't hear it. You're meant to think of Elijah and Elisha and David and Gideon and Solomon and Moses and Abraham. All these people, they all witnessed amazing things. They saw God do miracles, but what do these lowly disciples see? What do they hear that all these greats so desperately wanted to see? What do they hear that they couldn't hear? He's the one saying the words to them. They know Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the King, the Savior, the servant, the final prophet, the final priest. That the humblest believer understands things which David and Isaiah could never even explain. Right, we can say, I've seen him. Right, I've heard his voice. I know him. Right? And even more astonishingly, he knows me. And he has written my name in heaven. This made me think of um, the great film, The King's Speech, uh, that won many Academy Awards. I guess today is the Academy Awards, right? So King's Speech, it's a story about King George VI, played by Colin Firth, who had a stammering um, speech issues trying to become the king. And so he worked with a speech therapist named Lionel Logue, who was an Australian. He didn't tell his wife, Myrtle Logue, that he was working with the king of England. He didn't tell. He just kept that secret. It's a really well-acted scene. And one day, Myrtle comes home early, and the queen is sitting at her dinner table. And she doesn't know what to do, so she's in awe, and she stumbles and tries to curtsy. And all she can get out is, you, you. That's all she can say. 
And the queen says, it's your majesty the first time. After that, it's ma'am, as in ham, not malm, as in palm, right? If you're British, that would be funny to you. I'm not British, but I can see how that might be funny. But the point is, she walks in, sees the queen. She goes, it's your majesty. After that, it's ma'am. Right? The awe of how her husband is working with the king is just so palpable. I mean, it's translated so well through the acting. Like, what in the world? You're working with the king? Guys, there is one even greater than King George VI that you get the privilege of working with. It's King Jesus. And his strategy for reaching the world with his good news of peace is you. It's to call you into that work with him. There's no bench warmers in the kingdom of God. There's no JV Christians. That's why I love how Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, when Paul describes Timothy to the church in Thessalonica, do you remember what he calls him? He calls Timothy God's co-worker. He didn't say my co-worker, Paul's co-worker. He calls Timothy God's co-worker. That's true of you if you've received the peace of Jesus. Anyone who enters into this peace through Christ, don't follow that horrible bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. That's a terrible bumper sticker, right? But there is one bumper sticker that you could probably put on your car if you're into that that says, I am God's co-worker. That's exactly what Luke 10 is telling you, that Jesus is a king that saves and then he sends. So if you've been saved, you've been sent. He is mighty to save, and so we confidently go. We need to be reminded of this. We need to see the awesomeness of this. Guys, as we go into this time of response, before we take communion together, Mike's going to come up after we sing a song uh, and lead us in taking communion together. But I want to put a few questions on the screen for you just to pray about, to think about. I want you to, as you're considering taking communion in this time, if you're a follower of Jesus, this time is for you to take that meal and remember that your name is written in heaven. I want to ask you, who or what do you pray for? Are we praying for workers in the fields of Gresham? Are we praying for workers in the fields of Turkey? What are you convinced of? Are you indifferent about how serious this is? What are you convinced of? This was not a mission of indifference. Where will you get your joy? I beg you, get it from Jesus because it's the only joy that lasts. And what are you going to give yourself to? I pray let's give ourselves to this. Let's do it. He's a king that saves and sends. If you've been saved, you've been sent. Let's pray. God, messages like this can can be tough. Because we often don't know how to align our lives with what you're presenting here to us. I'm sure if most of us are being honest, our lives don't look much like this. And so God, give us the wisdom, give us the clarity to align our lives to your purposes in this world. God, give us a heart for people who don't know you. Open our eyes to see you, to hear you, to know that 
that we have a privilege that people who the great prophets of the past didn't even have. Open our eyes to experience the joy of knowing our name is written in heaven, that our, our joy is secure. God, would you do a work in our hearts tonight that only you can do, and would you do that for your glory's sake among all nations? Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.